Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with everyone online and in Milford and here in Nashua. I'm Dave, and thrilled that you can be here as we are in part two of our new teaching series on the Old Testament book of Ezra. Last week, Pastor Jake Scott kicked off the series here in Nashua. I was preaching out in Milford, and I just love this book. Even though it's written 2,500 years or so ago, it has striking parallels to our day and age. The context of Ezra is that God's people were disobedient from the Lord. They they were sinning, and sin is essentially disconnecting ourselves from the life-giving resources of God. And as they were trying to act independently of the way of Jesus, God gave them over to the powers around them. The Babylonians conquered them because they were so spiritually weak. They were taken to live in exile in Babylon. But then, as the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, King Cyrus surprisingly was stirred by the Lord to invite people to come back to their homeland, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the house of the Lord. That doesn't sound a lot like our day and age, but if we look back a little bit to the time of the intense, most intense months of the pandemic where we're socially distanced, divided, disconnected, it feels like an exile in so many ways. And now perhaps God is giving us an opportunity to regather, to be back together, to rebuild, to sense how God is stirring in our hearts like he did then, to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's all series long. The big question I want you to be praying about and grappling with and wrestling with is how might God be inviting you to be a rebuilder of his house, of what he is doing, of his community, of his family? doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how long you've been here. Maybe you're brand new. God is calling you to be a rebuilder. Out in Milford last week, the main challenge I gave to the community there was this, the rebuilding begins by recognizing and responding to the stirring of the Lord. Recognizing and responding to how God is working, how God is stirring. We can recognize how God might be at work, and He still is, by being open, by being expectant that God would speak. Sometimes that means we need to be still. God spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice, And it's almost impossible to hear a still, small voice if you're constantly moving or constantly distracted. So we want to be open. And as we're open to the Lord, we want to be discerning what God might be calling us to do. We do discernment all the time, whether we realize it or not. Pat's Nations right now is trying to do discernment. Who should be QB1? Mac Jones? Bailey Zappi? I'm on the Zappi train personally, but we'll just see. That's a little bit of discernment. And the point of discerning God's will, recognizing it, is so that we might respond to it, that we might get in on what God is up to all around us. And as we do, we get to be a part of something special, what God is doing. How is he calling you to be a rebuilder? I've loved sensing the ways the Lord even just recently has been stirring our community to pursue him. I had to celebrate the nine projects locally that our congregation, you know, a couple hundred of us almost, that were a part of getting to serve and, and give and contribute to the community. We believe as a church, God is stirring us to be the type of people that are for Greater Nashua, for Southern New Hampshire and Massachusetts. We hope that if one day our church were tragically to close, people would lament, people would protest. 
We want to exist for the benefit of our non-members. God is stirring. Last week, we kicked off Monday school, kind of a vision God had put on my heart a couple years ago, and we're in year two of it, and I was thrilled to see a hundred and around 115 adults, both online and in person, and another dozen or so kids come out to have a deeper experience of discipleship, because we sense that if we are going to listen to the stirring of the Lord, then we need to be people who are learning to live our lives the way Jesus would do it if he was us. We need to be trained to be disciples. God is stirring, and he's using our church to even be able to impact other leaders and and communities as well. And so my hope pastorally, as it brings me so much joy to sometimes get to recognize how God is stirring and to respond to it, to get in on it, my hope today and over this series is that you would take the steps God is stirring up within you to get in on what he is doing, to be a rebuilder for such a pivotal moment in our lives as this. So today and over the next uh, following weeks, we're going to look at five key ways God stirred up the people then to rebuild his house. And these might be five key ways he will be stirring us as well. So we'll be looking at Ezra 2 here, picking up where we left off last week in just a moment. But let me just uh, pray right now before we begin. Let's, Let's go to the Lord now. God, I thank you that You are on the move. That while you created everything, you don't just stand at a distance removed, but you are near. The name given to Jesus, Emmanuel, reminds us that you are here with us. Whether we're at home, in Milford, or right here in this room at the pond. And so I just want to invite you, wherever you are, just to maybe open up your hands to just symbolize the sense of openness and expectancy that you have, that God might stir something in your heart this very day, this very moment. So here we are, servants of the Lord. Please speak, because we are listening. And God, we know the surest way we can discover how you are stirring, how you are speaking, is through your word. So may you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, eyes to see what you want to communicate to us this very day. Think in our thoughts, speak through my words and your word, Lord, and work through this time of studying Ezra together. We pray this all in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Ezra chapter 2. You can follow along on the screens or in your scriptures, and I'll invite you wherever you are, let's stand for the reading of God's word here today. Ezra chapter 2. Now these were the people of the province who came from captive, from those captive exiles whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah all to their own towns. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, and that's not the same Nehemiah and the person in the book that follows Ezra, earlier one, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Benah. I'll pause there for a moment. The next 66 verses sound a lot like the last one. Now, to spare you of hearing me 
pronounce a lot of Babylonian and Hebrew names, we are going to fast forward to verse 68. The key thing here is about 50,000 people returned. They listened to the stirring of the Lord. And the scriptures record these names because these were actual people in situations maybe just like ours who had a role to play in what God did. And we might not be lead characters in God's story, but these people here played a part. And what might be the part God would have you to play? So let's now discover, who, after we learn some of the names of these people over about 67 verses, what do they do when they return? Fast forwarding to verse 68 through 70. As soon as they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families made free will offerings for the house of God, direct on its site. According to their resources, they gave to the building fund 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly robes. The priests, the Levites, and some of the people lived in Jerusalem and its vicinity. And the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all Israel in their towns. These are God's very words. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let's imagine for a moment that you are one of these 50,000 people that are making your way from Babylon west back to Jerusalem. Scholars estimate that the journey was around 900 miles in length. And not only was it 900 miles, it took them about four months to make the journey based on all the supplies they had to bring, based on how there were elderly members of the community and young ones on the journey as well. Can you imagine 900 miles, four months, how many times the kids might have been asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? But let's imagine you're on that journey for a moment. There are going to be people in that group who they remember being there. They are some of those who lived through this entire period of exile. They have memories of what Jerusalem was like. And now, God's promise has been fulfilled. They are going to return. Jeremiah prophesied this. Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And now that hope and that future is being fulfilled. But let's imagine you get a real second chance here. We messed this up here before, and that's a lot of the reason why we find ourselves in exile now. We get a chance to go back. How are we going to do it this time? Are we going to learn from our mistakes? Maybe you've been given a second chance at something in life, in a relationship, at work, in school, on a team. You maybe made mistakes before, but now you have another golden opportunity. You don't want to squander it. You want to leverage it to the very best of your capacity. That's the moment God's people find themselves in as they're returning. I can imagine around maybe campfires at night, some of the older members saying, here is where we messed up before. As we go back, let's make sure we get off to the right start. Let's make sure that we put first things first. And so as they prepare to return, what they sent stirring up within them from the Lord, whatever they do first is going to be really significant, isn't it? It's going to set the tone. It's going to set the direction for where God's people are going to go and what the culture of their community is going to be like. So what they do first, it's not going to be accidental. It's going to be intentional. 
And what's the first thing that they do when they come back to rebuild the house of the Lord? Verse 68 tells us, As soon as they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families made free will offerings for the house of God. First thing they do is they make an offering before the Lord. Now, I'm not sure if that's the first thing I would have done or would have thought of, but perhaps they realize we've been putting ourselves first and instead of putting God first. And now that we get a chance to come back, let's flip that script. We need to show, not just in our words and our thoughts and our beliefs, but through our behaviors, that God really is first and best in our lives. And so they make a free will offering. Perhaps they're trying to fulfill parts of the book of Proverbs that they didn't listen to before. Proverbs 3.9 tells us this, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Proverbs tells us to give first and to give best, not to give last and what's left over. Because where our kind of wallets and our money goes, there our hearts are. And so these people want their hearts to be set in the right position before God. And so they make a free will offering. It's the first thing that Ezra tells us they did. It gives us a lot of significance for how God was stirring them up to make God first and best, not last and leftover. There's an old parable about a man who was once lost in the desert, close to dying of thirst. Finally, after wandering mile after mile, he starts to see palm trees in the distance. Maybe an oasis, he assumed. He stumbles forward, exerting all the energy his weary body has left, and finally gets there. But when he reaches this oasis, he's struck by the strangeness of what he finds. There's no pool of water, no bubbling spring. He sees only a water pump. And beside the pump, two small objects. A small jar of water, and next to the small jar of water, a note written on a piece of parchment. He picks up the note, he reads it, and it explained how there is a leather gasket within the pump that must be saturated with water for the pump to function. And there was just enough water in this jar to get the job done. The note specifically warned the reader, don't drink the water from the jar because all of it is going to be needed to be poured into the base of the pump to soak up the dry gasket. Then, as the leather would uh, be expanded, an unlimited supply of water would then be available to be pumped. And then the note concluded, refill the jar for the next weary traveler. So imagine you're this person. What would you do? I mean, you are dying of thirst right now, and here is a perfectly good jar of water at your disposal. It will quench your thirst, at least temporarily. But would you trust the counterintuitive message of this note? That you are risking pouring out this water, which would have satisfied you. But if you do, if you believe this is right, if you trust this note, it will give you an unlimited supply of water and you can refill the jar for the next person. Would you trust your instincts, which would be to, of course, drink the water? Or would you trust this note 
which feels really counterintuitive to your natural inclinations. What do you think the person does? Who thinks he drinks the, the jar? Wow, no one, a couple, okay. Who thinks he pours the jar into the, into the pump? Well, there's an old song called Desert Pete by the group, the Kingston Trio, that tells the story. If we could know some, some Kingston Trio fans in the house, come on now. I'd never heard of them before. I was going to make a joke like, maybe the Kingston Trio is like coming back and open for new kids on the block or something like that, but there are some Kingston Trio fans here. I love it. I like this song. I listened to it a couple times, and here's how this song tells the story. Well, I found that jar, and I tell you, nothing was ever prettier to my eye. And I was tempted strong to drink it, because that pump looked mighty dry. But the note went on, have faith, my friend, there's water down below. You've got to give until you get. I'm the one who ought to know. So I poured the jar in the jar, and I started pumping, and I heard a beautiful sound of water bumbling and splashing out of that hole in the ground. I took off my shoes, and I drunk my fill of that cool, refreshing treat. I thank the Lord and the pump, and I thank old Desert Pete. They don't make lyrics like that anymore, do they? Huh? Wow. I know there's going to be a whole uptick of, you know, the Kingston Trio trending on uh, Twitter after this, I think. So this traveler trusts the note, pours the jar of water in, and is able to have all that he could want. I think this is very akin to the choice that God's people make as they come back. They are given the opportunity to live generously in the midst of uncertainty, because that's what God commands. And it says, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work of 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. In other words, it gave abundantly. They gave a lot. They gave generously in the face of their uncertain future to rebuild in a broken down place. What I love about this is this phrase, they gave according to their ability. Some people would have given more. They had greater capacity. Others maybe would have given less. But you get a sense over this four-month journey that they knew this is what's going to happen. It's the first thing that the book of Ezra tells us they do. I'm guessing people would have been assessing, what can we contribute to this? They might be praying, God, what would you, or what would you be stirring up within me to contribute? They might be discerning with others, what is the wise amount? And everyone had different levels of capacity they gave according to their ability. Now, this is a really poignant phrase in the Bible. They gave according to their ability. One a renowned Old Testament scholar named Derek Kidner believes this is the phrase that shaped a lot of Paul in the New Testament, who wrote 13 of the letters, a lot of Paul's theology as it comes uh, and, and talks about generosity. He contends these are the verses that led Paul to write first. Corinthians 16.2, or at least influence it. And here's what that verse says. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. This verse is the reason that we talk every week about generosity. It's not that we think it's really important. It's that God's Word commands it. And generosity is a way of honoring God 
And as we'll see, it helps bring greater joy into our own lives, and it also guards us against the perils of what money can do to starve our souls. Paul talks then, give every week as you are able. As you have income coming, give God first and the best rather than the last and the leftover. But Paul doesn't just stop there. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he writes these words that we shouldn't just give to our ability, but what if we were dared to believe God enough, to trust him enough that we would give beyond it as well? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, these first nine verses, which I'll read all of, are very profound and striking. Paul writes this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Let's pause there. The context of their rich generosity was not really favorable circumstances when there wasn't inflation, when things weren't over and above and going well. It was extreme poverty, severe trial and challenge. And yet, we start to see this inseparable connection between overflowing joy and abundant generosity. Joy comes from giving, and giving also leads to joy. It's a powerful relationship. Joy and generosity are inseparable. Paul goes on in verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the servants' service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace or gift of giving, not an obligation, an opportunity. I am not commanding you, verse 8 says, but I want to testify, test the sincerity of your faith by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. So Paul not only says, give according to your ability, but he says, give beyond it. And why? How could he say something so audacious and bold? Even the people that are in trying circumstances. Because we remember what Jesus has done for us. God, who is all eternal, took on human form, lived among us, showed us the best way to live, taught us, called us, and died a sacrificial death, rose from the grave, giving his life that we might have life. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his generosity, we might be rich. And just as that's what Jesus did, can we imagine his disciples being called to do anything other than that? Not only does generosity give God glory, but God's commands are acts of love. They are not restrictions of happiness. 
Let me say that again. God's commands are acts of love, not restrictions to our happiness. Giving and generosity gives God glory, but it also, as we trust Him, as we pour out that water, obeying God, He fills us with deep, deep joy as well. And not only does He fill us with joy, He helps guard against one of the most soul-stealing and crushing maladies that we can ever contend with. And that's greed. That's greed. I want to tell you about a temptation I've had recently. I will say one thing that never has been a big issue for me is being tempted toward material possessions. You know, as long as my car works, it's good enough of a car for me. As long as I don't have too many problems with my house, it's, it works for me. I'm not saying I'm all holy, like that's a, you know, I'm not tempted and I'm superior just hasn't been a big temptation for my life. But lately, that started to change. As my oldest son has been in kindergarten, and we start meeting other families, and we start hearing, oh, you're Dallas's dad, you know, we hear about you all the time. We start thinking, oh, we might really be friends, and then we start figuring out where do we live in town, and suddenly it becomes clear, you know, they live in a really nice part of town, and their kids have way more kind of physical things and possessions and opportunities and activities perhaps than my kids have. I will confess, I've started to feel inadequate, maybe feeling inferior, maybe, to be real honest, a little insecure. Anyone ever had that experience with others in, you know, schools? Yeah. Kind of makes me just not feel like as much of a man as I would like to feel like when it comes to providing for my kids. And I've started to think about, well, you know, I could probably do more for my kids if you know, we didn't tithe, uh, you know, pre-tax before uh, we were spending things. If we didn't give to other organizations and other, other causes that help alleviate poverty, if we didn't give as much of our income away, we might have nicer material things. We might be able to get our kids in all those activities as well. And I started thinking even, I did well in school. I could have earned more money than I would maybe make as, as a pastor, you know? Some people do get into pastoral ministry for the money. That's not the kind of church we are in here as well, just to say that. That's a thing, but it's not our thing. And I start to just allow this sense of inferiority to just well up in my heart. I feel tempted toward believing things I know are not true. And I think that's why God invites us and calls us to hide His Word in our hearts. Because just as I start to feel that, it was amazing how this passage from, from Luke starts to come back into my mind. Luke 12, 15, that just says, Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life, it does not consist in the abundance of possessions. My kid's life and livelihood and success does not consist in the abundance of activities or possessions either. And I start to realize that prayer I've been praying for years from Proverbs, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, has been true. And I start to think about all the ways God has, in fact, blessed us with so much joy in giving. How much that generosity really generates joy in my own heart. Just last Monday night, I was so just elated as we wrapped up our Monday school and the kids from Monday school, my kids included, came rushing out and just said, can we come back the next seven times for this? This was so much fun. And I start to realize 
getting them to church, helping them encounter the joy of the Lord. That's the best gift I could possibly give them. That is worth sacrificing for. That's worth having less so that they can have a whole lot more spiritually. And in turn, I have a whole lot more spiritually. One of the fascinating things in my ministry career is I've had opportunities to serve in some very wealthy areas when I was a seminary student in South Denver and then for about eight years almost in Lexington, Massachusetts. And one of the realities that my wife and I have observed is that some of the loneliness and saddest places that we have ever been are the biggest houses that we've been in. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And yet we have this tendency to try and hold on rather than to give. And so what God seems to be stirring up in the people then is to give first and best rather than last and left over. It's not just for God's glory, which it is, but it's for their joy. And it's to stave off the crushing power of greed. A little book I was given over the summer is called The Genius of Generosity. It's written by a pastor named Chip Ingram. And in this book, this kind of surveys a lot of the best teachings of the Bible. And and the story I told about Desert Pete was in here as well. But Chip Ingram, in studying and writing and teaching this, he says this, If I could sum up what the Bible teaches about giving in one statement, it would be this. Generous living produces emotional happiness. Generous living produces emotional happiness. Can anybody agree with that? Does anybody ever, can you testify to that? Yeah, both hands, I love it, come on. Yeah. God doesn't just call us to give because He commands it or wants something or needs something from us. He calls us to give because of what it does for the state of our souls, the welfare of our life, and the ripple effect it can have on generations to come. Over the summer, a friend of mine ordered a couple thousand copies of this book for his church, and they ended up sending him about 2,000 extra copies. So he drove up here and, and dropped them off, gave it to me, he said, you've got to read this. And I said, I'll, I will read this, and, uh, and, I, and I loved it. But I said, I, I don't love the book enough to hold on to like 500 copies for myself. It's not quite that good. And so today... On your way out at all of our campuses here, we have copies of the Genius of Generosity that you can pick up in the lobby. And I would encourage you to do so. Not only is it just a little gift from a friend of mine now to our church, but I believe as we want to rebuild the house of the Lord, the first thing God stirred the people to do back then was to make an offering. How might God be stirring us to do something similar? And just as they spent that four months kind of thinking about what will we do when we arrive. Maybe this is an opportunity. Spend some time to really reflect on these things because if we want to get in on what God is doing, then learning from how God stirred the people then might give us a clue, an indicator for how he might be stirring us now. Let me just say a word of thanks to everyone who has been giving so generously and sacrificially to our church. I believe we are vibrant and thriving and flourishing so much in part, not just because of God's faithfulness, but your generous giving. And so I want to say thank you. And I also want to say and communicate this message, which, you know, we are just following along the text of Ezra. There's no, like, hidden agenda here. We just went from chapter one last week. This is chapter two. 
I want to share all this just with compassion and humility because I realize these are daunting days as we look at the cost of heat and electricity, all these things as we prepare for winter. But I don't want that to be an excuse for us not to give first and best to the Lord, to get in on what He might be calling us to be a part of. And so I wanted to simply ask us, is God stirring us in some way, stirring you in some way, to live generously in the face of uncertainty? Is God stirring something in you? And as we look at Ezra's text and we look at how the Bible speaks very clearly here in First and Second Corinthians, the answer to that, of course, is yes. So let's ask another question. How might God be stirring you to live generously in the face of uncertainty? One of the best principles of giving I have ever heard is that you should give where you are fed and give where your heart breaks. Give where you're fed and give where your heart breaks. We hope here at Crossway that you would be fed spiritually, that as you put into practice these ways of Jesus that we teach, that it would enliven your heart and soul. And we want to have groups and serving opportunities, training opportunities like Monday School to help you get in on what God is up to. And not only that, when you give to Crossway, you're giving through our church to help bless ministries and the work being done to alleviate poverty and build God's kingdom all over the world. We set aside 10% of our budget that just goes right out to bless and serve those around us. It's around $170,000 to $180,000. And then we've been so generous as a church, taking special offerings to alleviate uh, the, the ways people suffer from not having clean water. You know, just that half marathon we ran raised about $64,000. A year or so ago, we did The Chosen with World Vision. Another $60,000 was raised. We've done special offerings for uh, refugee crises, for Afghanis coming to the States, for Ukrainian crises. Our church is an abundantly generous community of people. And I believe that's why God continues to bless and help us thrive and flourish. And I don't know about you, I just feel a remarkable sense of joy every time we gather together as a church. I hope you do too. So how might the Lord be stirring in your heart to live generously, give generously, even in the face of uncertainty? And just as God's people recognize and respond to that stirring of the Lord then, I wonder how we might recognize and respond to the stirring of the Lord now. And do you know what it's called? when a collective of people recognizes how God is stirring and responds to it faithfully, obediently, courageously. Do you know what that's called? Revival. Revival. And I don't know about you, but as we are given this unique opportunity to rebuild the house of the Lord, I want to believe that God might do something that would defy our expectations, that God would do something special. And the reason I believe the church, one of those key reasons the church grew so rapidly in Paul's day is because they gave beyond even their ability. And so may we, church, live generously in the face of uncertainty because it gives glory to God, because it will fill us with joy. It will stave off the temptations of greed. And we believe it will be an abundant blessing to the world around us. And that's what I hope all of us could get in on. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for how generous you are. 
Thank you for your faithfulness that you continue to pursue us, to seek us out. And God, I want to just ask for forgiveness, Lord, even for the ways I feel like I was tempted to give in to greed, to trust my own ways, and thinking possessions is where my life is found. But help us to guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And so, Lord, I pray as we look over these next weeks of how you are stirring us to give our lives as an offering, as you are stirring us up to worship you, as we'll see next week, to persevere through trial and resistance, to be people of the word and to be people of prayer. That is, you are stirring, God. May we be recognizing what you are calling us to do. And may we respond faithfully and boldly. And I dare to courageously pray right now, Lord, that may we play a small part, maybe just like the names of those people in Ezra 2, play just a small part in joining the new thing that you might be doing in our midst, God. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Stir in our hearts and give us the courage, Holy Spirit, to respond faithfully and obediently to how you are stirring right now. And it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that all God's people pray together and say, amen.